Hello and welcome to the Baby Giants Investing Podcast. Join us as we chat about the weird and wild world of small cap investing, all while searching for the precious few fast-growing businesses that have a shot at becoming industry giants. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Podcast guests and their clients may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. All right, hello and welcome to Baby Giants. We've got Claude and Andrew in the house today. How are you guys going? Great good to Matt. be here. Hey, Claude. Hey, guys. Very good. We've, uh, we'll kick off with a bit of good news. There was something we were chatting about a few weeks ago about all this AI image generation. And I think at the time we said, in a few years, you'll be able to generate a video through AI. And then like <laughs> this week, it's just happened, basically. So I thought that was kind of like a cool piece of good news. Apparently, meta AI's thing, you can just type, give it a prompt and it'll create like a, a proper video from it. Yeah, I've seen some pretty cool stuff online already with that. So I'm, uh, I'm going to branch out into uh, directing movies, I think, from now on. <laughs> yeah. Prompt, Writing the prompt will be well. like, like Star Wars, but better, you know, something like that. <laughs> and <laughs> go. <laughs> <laughs> and What's your wait, version wait for of the of Star Wars? I don't, I don't even want to get into your mind. <laughs> Nah, let's More not. Bitcoin references. <laughs> yeah, that's that's how he makes it better. Add add Bitcoin to Star Wars. Like, and he's like, yes, <laughs> perfected currency. And just <laughs> don't give away right. the secret formula, lads. Some other good news: Australians are the world's richest people. So, as of the end of 2021, the median Australian adult finished so median, not just average. Um, so, median Australian adult with a net worth of 273,900 US dollars richer than any comparable resident of any other country. As long as you don't actually try to sell your house, that remains true. <laughs> <laughs> and unless you're not living in a tent city in Lismore or et cetera, et cetera. It's, it's actually, um, enti- if you read into the article, it's entirely due to the gains in the property market. Not to say that mm. that shouldn't be counted or whatever, but that is that sort of is why. it. Ha- We've also got, well, on that same reasoning, we do have the most or at least we've consistently been in the top three expensive housing markets in the world over a long period of time. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's, that's a big part of it. But it just, again, I just, I shouldn't be throwing wet blankets on these things, but I think balance is always key here. But we, we also have a widening wealth gap as well, which is sort of a phenomenon we've seen in a lot of Western democracies, which is concerning. Yep. You guys see that four corners about like the housing crisis and it's basically yeah. just all single mums that can't find a house, even though they have a job. Yep. Yep. It's pretty nice rough. No, I didn't see that. Come on, guys. It's a good news part. It's a good news part. Yeah, it's yeah, medium. Okay. We're talking about medium here. We're not talking about Woo. average. So, on, on the medium person, you take the middle, middle Australian, they're the wealthiest people in the world, which is quite different. So, Switzerland's much wealthier per person, but they're much more imbalanced. Same with the yeah. US. The US is wealthier per person, but that's because yeah. it's we need much more concentrated. To keep that more balanced stuff, because I think it makes mm. for a happier, more crime-free society. Mm. Like, everybody 100%. wins. This is what I don't get. Like, why don't the rich people see it? That the true privilege is that you can walk a street anywhere in your country and not get mugged. That's the true mm. privilege. you got to look after everybody. I yeah. agree, man. There, there was also someone had done a bit more of analysis on all of this data, and they framed it really well. I'm sorry if I'm not. I can't remember the person to give them the proper juice here, but they described um, the US and the UK really as developing countries with a very rich elite. In other words, the skew is so top heavy that if you take away the top 10% 
and then do the analysis again. Like it falls sort of to, you know, Eastern European sort of levels of, of prosperity. It's it's quite quite stark. Good social engineering is having, I'll give you an example of good social engineering is in Finland, there's no private schools. Now, look, obviously in our culture, that's not going to fly and people will be like, oh, Claude, how could you say no private schools? But like, I, hear me out. Like, if everyone goes to the public schools, then there's huge incentives for the public schools to be made really good because the most privileged people still send their children there. So that's, everybody that's gets the best stuff argument. Like that. That's the best argument, Claude, not to sort of already tangent into something else, but it is. I think people will say, well, what's the difference? We pay X, X dollars per child. So what, what difference does it make? The difference is exactly as you say, it's one of incentives. When the rich and powerful yeah. don't don't have any stake in the game, then, you know, what? I mean, I see it. I, we we send our kids to public school locally. You know, we're we're having to sort of tip in money to pay for soap in the toilets, which I'm more than happy to do, by the way. But it's just soap. sort of like, yeah, yeah, and chalk for the teachers. It's 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 madness, right? So they 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 do a lot of fundraising and fates and jams and cakes and all. They they get by. But it's funny because you walk a couple blocks and there's a velodrome or an Apollo field in, you know, six tennis courts in in the private schools sort of like, it just seems, it seems imbalanced. It's all I'll say. Yeah. Makes sense. Yeah. I think New Zealand's only maybe five to 10% private. It's just a very different world, but I agree Mm. with that one. Some other news this past week which uh we're transitioning away from the more positive stuff although you kind of ruined the riches <laughs> we really <laughs> wet blanket <laughs> thrown no i think the good um, news is there that like we're not we're not as bad as we could be like so maybe yeah. you know things are i mean it may, it, like way. yeah I, I think deal with anyone in an emerging market and just uh, i think it's a matter of gratitude as well obviously we shouldn't be complacent but it's yeah. mind-blowing how much better off we are compared to yeah like, exactly and that's all we've got like just keep it good and then keep the immigration thing going and uh, mm-hmm. we'll have art artificial economic growth based on uh you know importing more people like yep. as corresponds to our lack of talent as well. <laughs> <laughs> and so ends the positive section <laughs> uk almost had a lehman moment i think that this hasn't got enough press so it got a bit of press but i don't think like the gravity of it is really like reached out that far and it's kind of it's avoided now but basically so what happened was well you followed this pretty closely andrew what's your read of the like the uk um the UK Lima moment. Uh, it's really it's going to be hard to do quickly, and I think I think the kind of person who listens to this kind of podcast probably doesn't need me to go into the details because you, you're probably across it. It got it certainly got a lot of coverage on sort of FinTwit and the rest of it. But the UK new government there or new leader there handed down a mini budget. Basically, it was pretty irresponsible. Depending on your take, I'm going to go with irresponsible. And I think the market sort of reacted to it in the same way. So we saw a big move uh, in the currency. We saw a lot of bonds and stuff being sold off. We saw a lot of, there's a bit of leverage in the pension system over there. And so to meet collateral requirements, a lot of them were sort of forced to sell various assets, which sort of caused more people, you know, it had, it had this sort of death spiral characteristic to it. So the, the Bank of England had to step in and, and basically create a bunch of money and buy a bunch of uh, assets to stop that contagion effect. Had they not done it's that- It's very 2020 we, style. Dude, it's very 2008. Yeah. We don't know what the counterfactual is, but I think a lot of smart people are saying that the counterfactual would have pretty much been the collapse of the economy over there. And what, what that actually means is potentially- a whole swathes, very large swathes of society having their retirement savings disappear. Yeah, it would have been pretty horrific. So the basically the 
currency started falling, that meant that bond yields started going up. So the price of bonds or the value of bonds started falling. Yeah, there's this great thing, Matt Levine, who writes in Bloomberg, um, writes some quite funny columns, but he kind of talked about how the reason that they levered so much was because they were the safest money. So he kind of has this point, if you have a pot of money that is immune to bank runs over time, modern finance will find a way to make it vulnerable to bank runs. That is an emergent property of modern finance. No one sits down and says, let's make pension funds vulnerable to bank runs. Finance as an abstract entity just sort of does that on its own, which I thought mm-hmm. was like a great way to summarize. But basically, you have the safest, most boring thing, buying like 30 and 40-year bonds. And yeah, you could say modern finance or the incentives of the system lead them to lever it up with speculative bets in a way that the whole pensions or 90%, the quote was like 90% of pensions would have failed in a few days in the UK. Actually, speaking of historical analogues, it might actually be apt to talk about uh, the long-term capital management um, story there as well, because that was something else, same kind of thing. Like these, they talked of these six sigma events, these events that not impossible, but like were so unlikely as to never occur in, in the age of the universe, kind of thing. And so that that allowed them to sort of take positions and take and play strategies that, in theory, in their models, was like really, 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 really safe. And, mm. and it's kind of like, it, um, is it Soros who talks of reflex solid? Re, Reflexivity. Yeah. Reflexology, yeah. I think, is that foot thing, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Different thing. Hey, for yeah. all we know, Soros is into that too. <laughs> <laughs> but I love it, though. I really love that that concept, which which is that, you know, you these every action has a has another equal, well, not an equal, but every, every action has a reaction and a consequence to it. Nothing acts in a vacuum and sort of, you know, to sort of assume that something will happen if we do this, but it's just, the, it, it's almost like the Schrodinger's cat of finance, you know, it's like, <laughs> as soon as you look at it, you sort of change it. And mm. it's, it's very, it, all of this kind of stuff, which is way too deep to pick into now is, is very worth studying for anyone in finance, because we live in a very complex dynamic world <laughs> and it's not always going to fit neatly into your little model. Uh, and, and that's a lesson that we seem to need to learn every decade or so. Yeah. It's wild. I mean, it, the thing is like none of the pension funds thought they were going out and taking these big risks. It's not no. like they were trying to be a hedge fund. It was just the incentives of the system drove them that way. I feel like this boom-bust thing is just a feature, like an almost inherent feature of capitalism now. Is I mean, is that's largely accepted, right? There's, I guess you can change the scale of it in terms of, you know, where it goes from peak to trough, but is it actually just the natural state of a capitalist economy that it just does booms and busts? I think what's interesting there, Claude, I think there's a game theoretical dimension to it. So, like, there's a lot of different examples you could give. But imagine imagine being the Aussie bank that doesn't lend to yeah, a property exactly. investor, right? It's sort of like you might think on a certain level that, that things are a little bit high and, you know, whatever, stretched a little bit. But if you don't, everyone else is making a fortune and you're not and you get fired and they'll put someone in who will do it. So, you kind of, you're forced to play the game. And you can be the most prudent person in the world, but all, all that happens is that you just get left in the dust because these things can take a while to play out. So it's sort of like whenever the music's dancing and the punch bowl is full, like get out there and party because yeah. I feel like that's, that's your incentive. Of, that's the strength of a good capitalist economy is if you can create an environment where there's enough stability, there's enough faith that you can own things, there's enough incentives, you incentive you incentivize people to take take a lot of risk and a percentage of those people get lucky and, and invent something that creates genuine productivity. You know, that obviously Australia does have its talents. I was joking before 
but that is definitely that's what rule of law gives you for example that's faith in institutions in government institutions gives you like a platform for people to do that kind of thing i think it's also the moral hazard so it's kind of the knowledge that you know you get all of the spoils of of playing the game but you you're completely covered uh, on the way down. So I, I mean, I'm, I'm actually, <laughs> this podcast so far sounds like, you know, finance for socialists <laughs> so far, but I'm, I'm a very this big market guy. <laughs> I'm a huge markets guy. I'm a, I'm a huge capitalist, but I don't, I don't think this is probably a, a, a fair and proper description of capitalism when, when there is that huge moral hazard there. I would actually say go to town, whatever. And if things, things go bad, then you know what? When you take risks, there are consequences and you get wiped out. Now, that's that's going to sound really harsh to all the poor people who have pensions in, in these schemes. But I would say there's an implicit assumption that we will bail out the banks. And I feel as though, well, why don't we bail out the, the customers, the people, and the banks let them collapse, right? Like that'd that it may, maybe put some people in jail for, for being, you know, too reckless or something like that. When there is zero consequence and lots of upside, you don't, you know, a 12-year-old will work out what, what the right move is to play. I know what I would do if I was if I was the CEO of a major international investment bank. I would roll those dice hard because my downside is I lose my job. <laughs> my upside is I make squillions. <laughs> All right, we're not putting Andrew in charge. On the topic of... Uh, <laughs> on the topic of... Uh, of booms and busts there, Claude. You figured out uh, how to pick the bottom of the stock market. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, that's not exactly what I was saying. <laughs> Obviously, um, yeah, so what Matt's teasing me about is my attempts to to look for uh, 10 signs that will make me want to buy stocks. Look, the idea is obviously that I do think, at least uh, sentiment-wise, at least sociologically, there is always a cycle. Now, it can be faster, it can be slow. But the idea is you go through optimism, excitement, thrill, euphoria, denial, anxiety, fear, depression, panic, capitulation, despondency, skepticism, hope, relief, and then back to optimism. So I think that it is a matter of fact, so psychologically, that we all get impacted by the the zeitgeist of people around us, what people are saying. And the ramification is that it's very easy when actually equity prices are at their most attractive and the risk reward is at its most favorable. Uh, to actually invest in businesses rather than keep it sitting in cash or whatever your safe alternative is. You know, it is a worthwhile exercise trying to at least name beforehand what it is that you're looking to see that will indicate that this indeed is the time when you should, you know, maybe you can't, obviously you can't pick the bottom. No one can pick the bottom. For all I know, the bottom was two days ago when I wrote this article. That would be ironic. But <laughs> that, was definitely, that was definitely the bottom, by the way. Just- <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, all in now. I write this article, the ultimate sign of the bottom. (laughs) Um, The reality is that I want to just have some sort of automatic process to make me uh, buy stocks because this is something that I've started doing over the last few years and I found it really helpful. Like I wouldn't have made any good purchases probably during the uh, very short and sharp COVID initial COVID crash if I hadn't like made lists of companies and the prices that I wanted to buy it at. And then, because when it was actually in those prices, I was like, oh, the market's going down so much every day. Just wait, just wait kind of thing. And then I finally did buy some just because I pre-said, oh, I like it at this price, I'll start buying. Mm. And that having a sort of automatic mechanism where I take the decision now about what I'm going to do in the in the future uh, can be a helpful way to overcome the fact that when when the opportunity is best to buy shares, your psychology will be full of fear, just like everybody else, because that indeed is what makes that the good opportunity. 
Yeah. So what? Um, so you're kind of using this as like a nudge to um, be more bullish, and so that you're prepared for that that kind of trough of despondency. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. And look, the markets might actually bottom before most of these signs even happen. But you know, I think a good one is uh, you know, and I'd be interested to hear what you guys think of. What do you think of maybe we could get into some of the nuance of of the Buffett indicator, which is variously described as the US stock market value to GNP or GDP or however you want to think about it. It's like a PE for the entire market, right? Yeah. So uh, I'll give the, the slight background of this one, which is one of my 10 signs I wrote about, because I'd love to get into a little bit more of the nuance there. You know, what it's basically measuring is the value of the publicly traded stocks to the, the gross domestic uh, product of the actual of the actual economy. And look, the his, back in the 60s or 70s or whenever he wrote about this, I think the idea was that, you know, there was a sort of level, I can't remember what it was now, 80% or 100% where he sort of considered it an, an attractive buying time. The thing is that level has sort of changed over time as economies have shifted. So, for example, if privately listed companies, privately owned companies are capturing more of the share of the value in the economy, which has certainly happened because corporate profits have outstripped wage growth in the last several decades. So actually, you should have a higher percentage now probably in terms of stock value versus the GDP. But the point is it's still a relatively slow-changing target. So it proximity to that historical trend line of where that, that ratio has been is still a good indication, in my opinion, whether the stock market is sort of highly priced or, or less priced and how much optimism or pessimism is in there. Yeah, and I think if you use GNP, which is what Buffett said, it yeah. corrects for something that people often complain about, which is that US companies earn their money overseas because that is included in GNP. But it doesn't really change it much if you use GDP or GNP. It's not like a huge difference between those two numbers. Yeah, I think it's fair. I think it's a good, I think it's another like tool in the box. I don't think it's like, there's probably something other stuff that's more kind of precise what are your what do you reckon? Give us a few signs that you thought. I, I wrote a few down. I think that the funniest one is just look for distressed jet ski sellers. But for somebody <laughs> tell me if there's any listener that sees that, please tell me. Like tweet it to me or email me. Like that's what I that's one for me. Didn't they have that in the GFC in in, in Perth? They had the jet ski index in I, yeah, the, I seem to remember I that as being a thing a decade yeah, ago. I definitely didn't come up with the idea completely myself. Brilliant. I love it. So what, what's the main one, Claude? Would, um, was it kind of like in order? I think your first one was inflation rates falling. Yeah. So I'd be interested in your take on this as well. So obviously, this isn't a guaranteed thing. But at the moment, we've got like inflation forecast to be like really high, I think above 7% or whatever. I At some point, if I see that, like probably the market will react to this. But I feel like if inflation does come down noticeably, then that is... V- at least potential that that'll be the they won't rise raise interest rates anymore because that's what they'll be waiting for. And if there's like a delayed reaction to the changes we've had now, whereby we've had enough interest rates rise that now people are burning through their savings, and you know sometime soon they're about to to run out really and start tightening their belts, then it's possible that you know we see into the end of this year inflation remain pretty high. Then beginning next year it starts coming down, and that might be you know a prop i'm not saying the market will have probably bottomed by then i don't even know like what do you think <laughs> but the point is i think that that's a sign that we're like closer to the end of this thing than the beginning put it that way uh, yeah. which may still be wrong because it could bounce up and down for years 
Yeah, I mean, my base case I'd mentioned before, I kind of expect inflation to fall and then rise. I don't know what it does after that, but I'd been kind of seeing a lot of deflationary or disinflationary stuff coming through as we kind of like move away from goods to services and just a a lot of stuff happen. And then I kind of see a potential for a wave of inflation coming from Europe with the energy crisis as they stop producing so much stuff and yeah, just kind of prices rise for that reason. So it's kind of like, I guess I've been preparing for like a fake out with inflation where inflation drops is my low conviction base case. When I say base case, it might be like 30, 40% probability. So it's just that it's so But if it is a fake out, do you think it'll, how long before it does, but like, I'm thinking, yeah, you might be right, but if you buy on the fake out and then inflation goes up again and maybe even interest rates go up again, then you might have another big sell-off period and then mm-hmm. the actual bottom might come after that. But That's true. by buying the fake out, you still would have bought some at a low enough price, I guess, even though you will be feeling like a bag holder as, mm-hmm. as you go through the, the rest of the period. I mean, you've got to contextualize it as well as like, I guess my direction probably needs to be deploying more into the market now. Like I'm, I'm fairly, I haven't really deployed any additional capital to market for quite a long time now. And valuations are getting relatively more attractive than they were, you know, nine months ago. It was kind of hard to see value anywhere. Still, some of it's a lot pretty, pretty stretched, of course. Yeah. But- yeah. My, um, some of my like high level take on it is I think it's worth thinking about the macro things so you can think about the like possible worlds that your companies will be inhabiting because it makes quite a big difference, right? Like if you think we're going to have much higher interest rates, then probably like things that are very exposed to lending or like capital availability might not be the best, you know, might not fare very well. So I think it's worth thinking of, I think of it like a weather report. If you're, um, if you're sailing a boat, you should read to see if a storm's coming kind of thing, even if it's just a probability. But um, for me, I think just uh, like a bottom-up approach on valuation kind of does the job for me. And what I like about that, it should keep you out of the market or have more, you know, cash or whatever you want to define it as when things are lofty because if you're, you know, valuing the businesses, you find less things that are attractive. But it also, at least for me, helps me kind of keep my kind of North Star or like, you know, keep my bearings because that's what I think the and I don't think this is, affecting you, Claude, I would get a bit lost if I got too into macro because if that was deciding when to buy and sell, I wouldn't really have a basis for, yeah, basis for making decisions. Like let's say that inflation falls and I buy and then it starts, it rises and like I could just see myself getting whiplashed out of kind of losing, yeah, losing orientation. That's that's kind of why I always come back to valuation for me. For sure. I find that also the most, before I even thought about these two signs to buy, 10 signs to buy I, I was thinking about you know what are the prices for wh- what i call my fluffy dog stocks like the highest quality ones mm. and some of those i already own small positions in because i just even though they got super probably overvalued i just never want to sell out completely because it's very easy at all times to just forget that long-term vision as an investor but as we all know it's actually just finding even a very good company is if it's able to compound a lot over 10 20 years the gains aren't going to very rarely are they going to come in an even straight line up. They come mm-hmm. the ups and the downs and the swings and the roundabouts. The the ones that I'm most willing to buy when things look ugly, to a degree, I just want to buy. I want to be buying them when things are ugly because if it gets into a valuation range where I can justify it as like, yeah, I think this is this is a good enough price, like it's undervalued now then that's one that I won't feel too bad if I buy it and it goes down further. Yeah, uh, just because I, I have a way higher tolerance for 
I have a way higher confidence in the quality of the company. So I have a way higher tolerance for basically just becoming a long-term holder and, and believing in the in the long-term tailwinds and, and hopefully good qualities that will exert themselves over time. So they're the first cab off the rank for me to buy. But I suppose if I feel like we're going into another bull market, I kind of do want to put in a bit more risk capital as well. Like I'd be more willing to be like, take a few riskier bets. Because the other thing as well, I don't know if you guys agree with this, but an impression that I've had sometimes is often the big, the mega caps and the high quality stocks will start like turn a corner before the micro caps and, and the more forgotten small caps do that are higher risk. So sometimes you can have a bit of a bull market or the money flowing back into the larger caps, but the small caps just get a little bit left behind at the beginning of a market. And that's one of the things I like about being a small cap investor because sometimes you can see, well, you know, the big guys are getting flows again. That means funds, like basically money's flowing back into the market, but it hasn't trickled down to the, to use a, a painful metaphor, trickled down to the smaller <laughs> companies yet. I was going to so, use a trickle, I was going to use a trickle down that? joke, but, but 99% <laughs> of you wouldn't get it. <laughs> oh, you've been sitting on that all week. Damn it. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. Yeah. So, what do you think, though? Do you have any take on picking bottom, Andrew? Did you yeah. have anything else? Can't do it. I know. What Can't do it. Yeah, I think it's, I, well, yeah, I think there's also just the, the practical side. I think it's very interesting. I agree. It's worth sort of having a view. I've certainly got my macro view. It's a pretty bleak view, <laughs> to be honest. <laughs> But I'm I'm fully invested, almost. You know, for me, it, it just I have very lumpy income. Um, but when it comes through, I I pretty much look to deploy it, and I pretty much go bottom up. You know, what what looks good, what looks cheap. It's kind of the only way to play it. It, it will depend on where you are in your investing journey. I've I've still got a good twenty years or so until retirement, if not more, hopefully. And and so hey, on I, the topic I, of oh sorry, Andrew. Well, I was just going to say, it's just sort of uh, more money has been lost. I forget, was it Peter Lynch or someone? More money has been lost in, in trying to anticipate the tops and the bottoms, mm. tops and bottoms than has been in actually, God, I'm torturing it. You know what I mean? <laughs> than actually, than actually suffering the losses of going through them, you know? What, what, um, no, what happened guess- with Credit Swiss this week? That was the other thing I was going to ask because you, you, you dug into it a little bit and that's kind of like around the bottom. So well, nothing happened with Credit Suisse. That's, that's okay. the interesting thing, right? So nothing, I mean, the share price has been slaughtered, but you know, so, so have a lot of companies um, uh, in that region of the world. So it's not anomalous in and of itself. It's not like it's a bull market and Credit Suisse is down like a heap. But it, what was so there's just rumors on Twitter, was it? it was just well, fake. what was fascinating was it was an ABC journalist who tweeted out something like a credible source tells me that one of the major European investment banks are in, on the on the brink of insolvency, something like that. Again, um, I've not prepared well for this podcast and I don't have the exact tweet in front of me, but it was something like that. And it went viral and it went international. And it's sort of like, it's a really good reminder of like, we all look for things to confirm our bias. So we had people on the other side of the world, probably never heard of the ABC, probably never heard of this particular journalist, but took it as like, oh, yeah, this, this ABC absolutely, reports, even absolutely like- confirms my suspicion that the whole damn thing is going to come crashing down. And it's just, fa- I mean, even you even had Taleb and like all these really notable people sort of like commenting on it. So it's it's fascinating because on one hand, when you look at their balance sheet and their tier one rate capital ratios, it doesn't 
there's nothing that's really screamingly obvious there. Oh, the other thing was the, was the uh, credit default swaps, was it? The the insurance yeah. instruments uh, against them was like at a, at a like the highest since the GFC, etc. So, I mean, pick your narrative. Um, on, on one hand, you can kind of say, well, nothing's happened yet. The CEO and everyone's come out and said, nothing to see here. At the same time, they did say that just before the GFC as well. Uh, that's what Lehman, like a week before Lehman's went under, the CFO was like, no, 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 we're completely well capitalized. So these things can move very, very rapidly. And and even when they do, we've got to not just anticipate the likelihood of that happening, but what's mm. the likely response in that? Maybe they completely get bailed out. They are classed amongst all the global banks. They are, I forget the exact classification, but it's systemically important at, at, to the highest degree. So this isn't, yeah. this isn't something, I think, I think it, it would be very unlikely that they weren't bailed out. Um, if, if something did go wrong. But it's just, I don't know, it's a fascinating thing. There's There's been a lot of stuff on Twitter lately, which kind of like, you go, oh my God, that's huge. And then you think, well, wait a second, <laughs> what's the veracity of it? The most recent one with Xi Jinping has been overthrown in a coup. <laughs> <laughs> like and the, and Twitter just lit up like whoa oh my gosh you know what's happening in China is like no he's fine it turns out there's absolutely no uh, validity to that that claim so so what's what am I saying it could be the same with Credit Suisse I don't know um, it's it's yeah. one of those things that like if it was to happen it's not like you go oh my god I never thought that was ever possible uh, at the same time it might just be absolutely nothing who is this credible source what do they know yeah. that we don't know i don't know yeah i'm with you a bit more factual news big tin can is buying live tiles uh, so i think we've covered we've covered live tiles a bit before i can't remember if we've covered big tin can um i feel like we have yeah i feel like we have too yeah what do you guys think what do you think of big tin can buying live tiles these are like the poster childs of loss making software companies yeah with <laughs> no discernible competitive advantage yeah negative one times negative one yeah. Uh, well, positive one. Very negative one. They yeah. they belong to an era, uh, a very recent era, where the market's sole focus was on on earnings growth. And you can look at I've, I've you mean revenue growth. Look, sorry, revenue growth. You can and you can look at you can look at both of them, and it's parabolic, right? Like you know, five years ago it was like a few million, and then it just boom exploded. And that that is obviously very very alluring. But as as you point out, Claude, like at the same time, the losses have just been huge. They're not turning that sales growth in, into free cash flow. And there's also a big story in in acquisitions there as well. So I'll talk about this company in a moment, perhaps. But but we're speaking to a, a CEO of a, of a technology company recently, and he was talking about the difficulties of of technical debt. And I think anyone who works in this space knows exactly what this is. And a lot of us probably outside of this are a bit blind to it. But you have all these software companies. They make all these acquisitions. It looks really good on paper. Behind the scenes, you've got a team of developers that have to use sticky tape and, and blue tack to sort of stick these software products together. The initial, initial devs who probably built it are long gone. They run on different systems. It's a nightmare. And it can take a long, long, long time to stitch them all together. But at the meantime, you've got this huge, huge incentive from the top saying, no, 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 we've got to roll this out. We've got to roll that out. And actually, we need a new product for this. And by the way, I know you're still halfway through the first acquisition that we made last year, but now there's another acquisition that we need to bring on board and integrate the cultures and get the software all running. I honestly feel like Big Tin Can is just, at a certain point, I just gave up trying to figure out what the organic growth is because every year, like clockwork, there's a... Um, an acquisition that like muddies the waters and make it harder to figure out what the real organic growth yeah. is, if any. Yeah. Now I've, I've got to admit, I'm not close enough to either of these businesses. And the reason I haven't been is because it just it all gets too hard. And I just, it's too hard basket for me. 
But it is it is growth that's been very heavy, heavily influenced by acquisition. Isn't always bad. There's obvious, really good exceptions to the rule there. But you know, statistically, it's not great. And just when you're not seeing the scale benefits emerge. I think it's very much more attractive to see growth by acquisition if you're buying profits. But when you're buying a company that's making losses, mm. I just think, this, who knows what's going on there? But basically, I think that there's much more capacity to run into trouble. And look, what I think is amusing is, whereas Big Tin Can has sort of done okay over the years, and it's still, you know, trading, I guess, double the share price it was when I started following it many years ago. Live Tiles has been an you know, an absolute joke of a business, basically. Uh, it's just even very difficult. So its focus is like intranet software, so it's hardly in a, a huge secular growth area, but it has also done quite a few acquisitions, but it has also like just not even got close to, to becoming profitable and, and done multiple capital raises along the way. And also just, there were, you know, I think I sold it years ago when it started advertising on, on Hot Copper and I basically thought, that you know that's a sign there's not going to get more hype than this um it could have probably got more hype but it didn't there's been a lot of bad press as well um for example you know live tiles to pay 8.5 million dollars to settle legal dispute with co-founders former associates who in- included his brother there's also another one i'm just reading headlines at this point live tiles sued for 33 million by employee alleging he was sacked for being old and having cancer and mm. on top of that like i remember Way back in the day, the Glassdoor reviews gave a very negative, <laughs> a negative point of view, and I won't read them all out. But like, if you want, if you did research this company, you would find this pretty quickly, and and it's just hilarious. You'll have you'll have a, a clearly scathing review, and then a month later, this is the funniest one. You know, I don't pay any attention to five star reviews, but this is a five star review. A month after a very negative review, great place to work, amazing people, and culture department, and opportunities to grow. <laughs> <laughs> like they've actually and called out the too. HR department. <laughs> they've called out oh, those HR. Like there's like t- there's like five you know one star reviews about saying it's toxic and stuff, and then there's another one like oh the HR department at this company so good, so good <laughs> cons. I don't think I can give any cons. I'm pretty happy and satisfied here. Wish there were more people in yes. HR. <laughs> yeah, like HR giving a good, like I'm totally not HR that one. Yeah, it's a and culture that, department too. It's like the specific department that is measured by a glass door scale. <laughs> yeah, right. exactly. Like specifically want to call out HR for being fantastic. Uh, yeah, nothing, not at all um, questionable. Uh, yeah, so got a few five stars like that and you know what to look for. You see clusters of five-star reviews and, and like, you know, it's like two extremes, right? It's either one-star review saying the pros, the wallpaper in their New York office is amazing. Um, <laughs> yeah, push pay used to do that. Advice, day, advice to management, you are beyond saving. Yeah. So, yeah, uh, look... I, I don't know how it's going to turn out for Big Tin Can to buy live tiles and, um, you know, certainly don't know of the savings to be made, I guess, if you, if you consider the fact that o- over the last few years as the share prices dropped from $0.40 cents to $0.04, cents, um, the CEO total comp's been, you know, anywhere from $1.7 million to a low of 950 k uh, So, yeah, look, lots of 
lots of salary, big salaries there that they could maybe cut. So I guess the argument would be that under their ownership, they can make lifetiles profitable. Uh, look, not the most absurd thing I've ever seen, but Big Tin Can itself has, has a big profit gap to fill. Their losses are going up as their revenue is going up, which is genuinely not the kind of operating leverage you want to see. I'll put some numbers on that. So like the EBIT was four years ago, they were losing $3.6 million in EBIT. And then the year after they lost $12 million, and they lost eleven, and they lost $21 million in the most recent year. And this is over a period where the revenue is 5X'd, more, more than 5X. It's not not the kind of scale you want you want to or scaling you want to see. Yeah, I mean, yeah, we'll see. I guess this is the acid test. They might might have been rewarded by the market for that for a while. Maybe they weren't trying, um, but I, yeah, yeah, is it actually capable? Hey, um, maybe the other one that you mentioned. Before, make sure we get a good time for that. Was that Zoom to you, Andrew, the one that you're referring to that you wanted to chat about? Uh, yeah. So we spoke to the founder and CEO Steve Orenstein um, just this week, actually, and I have to admit it wasn't a company that was on my radar, but um, a member of ours said, "Hey, it, it looks interesting. Uh, we should we should chat." So we lined it up. I should mention it's it's a pretty illiquid company. That's it's a it's a micro cap, seventeen million dollars. It only listed last year, a bit over a year. It's been on the market, and what a time to list, right? They've pretty much listed at the peak of the market. Well, I guess actually, if you look at it in a certain way, it's a great time to list. <laughs> That's where you where you want to be, right? But um, the share price chart looks pretty awful. It's sort of gone from fifty cents down to forty cents, but. But of course, that that's not telling you the full story. So let me back up. They they're they provide delivery solutions. They essentially operate a marketplace platform that connects businesses to a network of drivers. So when I had Steve on on the call, I, I explained it as like an Uber for your parcel. So generally speaking, you'll say I've got something I need delivered somewhere. You'll dial it up. You'll see a bunch of drivers. Someone will accept it. They'll come and they'll drop your parcel off. And it's a business that has actually been growing really really strongly. The last year, it did about 2.8 million deliveries for 83,000 customers in, in Australia, and that's that's with a network of 12,000 drivers. And that's a period where they saw their revenues jump 63% to just shy of $5 million. So still a very small business, but when you look at that revenue growth, so you have to go to their prospectus to sort of see what they, what they did prior to listing, but it's what you want to see, right? Very, very strong growth. Interestingly, uh, as part of building that product, and the business was only founded in, in 2014. They had this other business uh, well, within that, which, which sort of helps manage all of this kind of stuff. So they've spun that off as a separate business called Locate to You. So it helps you sort of do fleet management, um, essentially. So you can track deliveries, you can optimize routes, et cetera, et cetera. And that is, that is really, really new. And that is a big part of the listing. So they did 31,000 in revenue for this really nascent business the year before and just the year reported they did 500k and a good part of that they didn't have a sales team so an incredibly low base but a much 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 bigger market so even on the call we're sort of joking this could be like uh what we saw with slack you know it started off as a games company and they developed slack internally <laughs> and the other a member of ours suggested a bit like touch pay and Afterpay. pay there's, there's there's an interesting case study in businesses that start off as one thing and this other thing that's over there kind of becomes the, the core part of it so anyway i don't want to say I, while while we sort of chatted about that you know steve was very much like no 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 like you know zoom to you is 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 absolutely a big part of our business. Don't write that off. And it is growing very strongly. So I guess a couple of things I, I would note here. So as any anyone knows, these, these you can build the software and say, hey, wouldn't it be great if there was like an Uber for deliveries, you know, companies and freelancers and the rest of it? It's like, yeah, that's cool. 
then you've got to build the software and then you've got to see the network. Like it doesn't work without drivers and it doesn't, drivers aren't going to come unless there's people using it. So they've, they've reached this interesting point where they've kind of bootstrapped that. And he did that in a really cool way. He basically bought a domain because basically what most people do, if you're a small business and you just need to get a package, something, you just Google it. And there was a domain that was just, I uh, forget the exact name of the domain, but owned by a former business, bought that, optimized that. And it's just, it's just like given them huge amount of, of traffic flow. And now they've gotten to the point where Bunnings Warehouse, uh, Decathlon, I think Clark Rubber, and they're getting some more enterprise level deals as well. So I think it's, I think it's interesting from that point that it's kind of, you've, you've crossed two very big Channel, you've climbed two very big peaks and challenges, and now it's a matter of of just scaling that out. Um, the thing to watch is that there's 4.2 million in cash on the balance sheet, and the operating cash flow was negative 1.2 million for the most recent quarter. So he does seem very cost focused, but so kind of like a year worth of cash, maybe. Yeah, yeah, okay. I, I think so. Do, do you I guys guess. think that this is a kind of business model that you know one day is actually? profitable like what are the conditions that are needed for this kind of business to be profitable because is it is uber even profitable i'm not sure I'm no no i don't think it is actually actually talked about a bit about that so one thing one thing that impressed me i he, he seemed to one he's got a really interesting background um so he had um another business which he founded uh what was it called again connect to field in 2010 and sold to it uh, a US listed company called Fleet Maddox just three years later. Um, so he's 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 got form. I actually wouldn't be surprised if this gets bought out, to be honest with you. Who do you think would buy it, Andrew? Oh, like, yeah, I, I the first part of the, the, the discussion was me really trying to understand the industry because you would think that it like a DHL or you know a FedEx or something like that, it sort of seems to be well within their wheelhouse. But it's actually like DHL, for example, uses these guys. Uh, as well. So it's really the last mile kind of thing. I mean, is it just about like there's a subsidized service that, that is offered at a lower cost than, you know, it could be replicated? So DHL's like, great, sweet, you can do this unprofitable part of the distribution. Well, it's kind of interesting because the the marketplace model with zoom to you is actually a pure marketplace. So people just say what they want to pay and, and the drivers will accept it or won't accept it. Right. So it's, it's and they take a 20% clip, I believe, on that from memory. Gotcha. So, so it's, that's actually it's, a bit different from the Uber kind of model. Yeah, yeah. Now, so, so obviously- similar, What's the difference with Uber? Well, I guess if it's a marketplace versus- You mean setting, it, kind of setting the price versus Uber setting a price kind of thing? Yeah, right? exactly. That I mean, if that's the difference that I understood correctly. Yeah. I guess my biggest thought, Andrew, is um, they want to be like the Uber for freight, but I feel like Uber is the Uber for freight. So here's the other interesting thing. So exactly, this is where all your thoughts go, right? And it's kind of like, well, a lot of the drivers are Uber drivers. So if you, I don't know if you've gotten an Uber lately, but they've got the, is it Digi? Like there's like four stickers on the back of the car and like, they, like the drivers are literally using every single ride-sharing app that there is available. And so a lot of them are also using zoom to you because why not? I'm in a car. If I'm a driver- what do I most want to avoid? I want to avoid dead time. I want to make sure that every kilometer I'm driving, I'm on the clock. And so I've just got my apps all set up on my phone and whatever's closest that I can do right now, I'm going to take. So so it's not a, it's not an either or proposition for these freelancers, these gig economy workers, right? And it's just like, I'll take it. So bing, here's a job. Do I want it or do I want it not? Does that, does that come from Digi? Does it come from Uber? Does it come from Zoom? Do you? I don't care. <laughs> I, just, I just don't want to be sitting here 
the side of the road playing, you know, Angry Birds on my phone. So I thought I thought I that still was think that's like a that's an argument for us. Yeah, anyway, I Zoom to you seems interesting, but at the same time, that sounds like maybe it's uh, going to be a structurally unprofitable business. Like if everybody, if there's just so many apps, you know, like I feel like it's similar to buy, buy now, pay later in a way. Like there's just the 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 heights these things have soared to based on this like item of faith. It, have you ever seen that South Park episode where it's like the dwarves or whatever, and they're like the underpants gnomes. Yeah, still underpants. <laughs> Step two, question mark. Step three, profit. <laughs> There's but another I one from Cartman, I... which is step one, startup ideas. Step two, raise capital. Step three, sell out. <laughs> step four, bro down. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I should I should be careful here because until yesterday, I I didn't. I, I wasn't across it. I've certainly done no due diligence. Um, so there's a lot of, and I don't own shares, so I'm not trying to spruik this in any way, shape or form. I guess I was just, I was impressed with the way he answered question. When I was talking to him about capital management, this this is a rare answer, but it's one that I, that I no, think is really good. Soundboard clicked in. Did someone, <laughs> someone drop out? I thought you were about to like give him some peaceful music, like as he makes a profound point. There we go. There you go. Sad violin. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently if I press the number five on my keyboard we start listening to sad violin there you go <laughs> maybe it would have to work you guys are lucky that i don't have this Uber. magic keyboard <laughs> so um uh lost my point now oh yeah. right so so when i was sort of asking about capital management and yep. the rest okay. of it his mm-hmm. lens was it's not the money that we're spending it's the return that we're getting and that seems like a, a subtle but important point so it's kind of Listen, we have we have very much focused on moving to profitability, but it's not a consequence of the market mood and the the demand from investors switching, which is we've noted several times on this podcast before, where that that has been a phenomenon over the last year or so, where it was all about revenue growth. Now it's all about sort of cash flow. It's like, well, obviously we we're mindful of that, but why would we not spend money if we're going to get a really great return on that with high conviction? Now, whether or not that actually manages to get done or not is an entirely separate thing. Execution is everything. But I thought there was a lot of nuance and, and wisdom in that as an answer. Nice. Yeah, I guess for your question, Claude, I actually think Uber will be really profitable. Um, we'll see if that happens over the next year, but my guess is it will be. And But I don't... I'm. St- Still have questions about small guys like Zoom to You and um, what was the other one that we J Ride, which does like the airport transfers, just these really small trying to compete with Uber because Uber basically wants to do everything related to drivers. So um, yeah, that'd be my concern. But no, I think mm. it's a he's definitely like a very seasoned entrepreneur. So maybe he can carve out a niche that like yeah, and then maybe Uber buys it or something. I don't know. You got to look at it from an Uber's point of view, right? And you kind of think this thing's seventeen million dollars on the ASX. You know, like we could build it and do it. Yeah, it seems like know. he actually did a live demo unprompted, which I always thought was pretty cool too. But yeah, it's just, I don't know. I don't know. Hey, um, don't own shares, other- not recommending it. Do your own research, mm-hmm. all of that kind of stuff. We'd, uh, we'd said we weren't going to talk about Elon again until we hear an outcome on Twitter. And I was very tempted. We basically had him in the run sheet already just because all these text messages came out with him like texting about the billion dollar deal. What have you done this but week? But then right? he's, he's just announced that he's going to buy Twitter. He's like, he's back in. So therefore we have like a resolution, I guess, a lawsuit. Well, we'll see. There's probably going to be more twists and turns, but he's back there in to buy Twitter. definitely going to be more twists and turns. Yeah. So some of the tweets came out. Maybe we could just chat on that first. Like, That'd be good. Just the, just the wildness of these billionaires clearly not doing any due diligence and like the flippancy of the decision. So 
Larry Allison's testing him and he's like, oh, so he must have said, I want to invest. And Musk says, roughly what dollar size? Not holding to anything. The deal was oversubscribed. It wasn't oversubscribed, but that's that's okay. That's what everyone says. After a due to kick out some participants, Allison says, a billion, dot, 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 or whatever you recommend. <laughs> and Musk says, whatever works for you. I recommend maybe two billion or more. This is very high potential. I'd rather have you than anyone else. Um, Allison says, I agree it has huge potential and would be lots of fun. Absolutely, Musk says. And that's it. <laughs> that's the discussion. <laughs> um, and then the, mo- the more fun one was this uh, blockchain guy. So his like, you know, Musk's lead banker, Morgan Stanley, he clearly called Musk. Musk hasn't answered. And he says, Sam Bankman freed is why I'm calling dot, dot, dot. Musk replies, question mark, question mark, question mark. <laughs> I'm backlogged with a lot of critical work matters. Is this urgent? And then the advisor says, he wants one to f- one to $5 billion. Serious about partnering with you. Same security you own. Um, he goes on to say, like, could do $5 billion in one go. Thought it might be worth an hour of your time. Can talk when you're not urgent. Musk replied by hitting the dislike button. Serious <laughs> 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 love is like legal discovery. Musk replies by hitting the dislike tap back button. And then he, he eventually agreed to meet as long as he doesn't have to have a laborious blockchain debate. Um, and it just kind of points out like Musk has such a level of wealth where sometimes he gets text messages offering him $5 billion and he replies with a thumbs down and moves on with his day. <laughs> but um, basically they all make it like pretty, there's there's a lot of tweets that you could go through if, at your leisure, but um, yeah, he kind of knew about the bot was the, uh, knew about the bot problem. So like his legal argument that he didn't know about bots, he's like very frequently talking about, we're going to mm. deal with the bots and blah, blah, blah. Um, so maybe that was it. Maybe that like, you know, just kind of saw that all came out and figured, okay, we better go ahead with a deal. Mm. <laughs> it's crazy, man. It's so, it's so wild. Uh, I just, I think also too, you, you, you assume that there's a lot of deep pondering and thinking and high level meetings with lots of really capable underlings, you know, they're sort of, you know, giving you all the info and it's, you know, he's on the toilet with his smartphone, like <laughs> using emojis <laughs> to like broker these massive deals. It's sort of, it's wild. It's wild. Yeah. Can I say this is a little bit off topic, but I just have to point out how thoroughly disappointed I was with the Optimus reveal. Uh, the robot. What? Tell us about the robot. So yeah, Tesla Tesla has um is part of is part of uh, the self-driving feature of their cars has basically built some really cool AI to 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 use cameras to to navigate streets and all this kind of stuff. It turns out Musk has made the point before that it's actually really well once you've kind of got that you can apply it to all kinds of different scenarios and one scenario would be vision for robots. And we've all been we've all seen the Boston Dynamics videos right we've all seen Doing the kind like of parkour jumping oh, man, all over the place dancing like right, right? Mm-hmm. dance better than i can not that that's a high bar but you know that's mm. if there's a dancing cheering test they can do pass it they can do the head nod past no. <laughs> <laughs> it right it's like incredible stuff and then and then elon you know like the tech the techiest bro of tech bros says that we're gonna we're gonna release uh, a, a humanoid robot and we've seen some like uh, concept designs and all this kind of like whoa it looks so cool and it's elon right so you, you're expecting some really big reveal <laughs> this thing comes out that just reminds you of asimo from 1983 <laughs> which can barely walk and you know it's just sort of like and twitter like wow it's so amazing how far you've come in just a year and i guess like by the way it is pretty impressive how far you've come in a year i suppose because that's that's you know zero to one kind of stuff mm-hmm. at the same time i think a lot of us were expecting something a bit more impressive and not something that had to be sort of held up by all these techs in the background. 
check out the video if you don't know what I'm talking about. It's it's very underwhelming. Very underwhelming. Yeah. He'd said that was the first time it wasn't with a tether on, like the first time it wasn't connected. Don't reveal it. It's not ready yet, Elon. It's not ready. (laughs) What I don't get. Sorry, guys. What I don't get is like the people that love Elon getting on there being like, oh, this is amazing. Like, did you guys see any of those tweets? Like, yeah. Elon's done it again. Like, what is going on? Like, he can basically unveil a ham sandwich and people be like, oh, only Elon can. Did you see how he cut the crusts? Oh, man. Just brilliant. He's like the most self indulgent dude that has, like, (laughs) you know, he's just not. I get that he's, you know, an impactful fellow, but just the the worship oh, of him. Super impressive like, guy. It's like there's no question about it. But it's just like you know, it's there's that saying of never meet your heroes. If I was ever given the chance to meet some of these people, you, I think you'd be like really disappointed because like we've all got we've all got attributes that are probably not that great, and we we put people up on pedestals. And while he's done some amazing, impressive things, it's like at the same time, it's like. You just got to put your head in your hand sometimes, and just Elon. Yeah, like, <laughs> I'd, doing, I'd prefer the Elon Musk that you know makes electric cars, not the one that like calls like you know heroic rescue divers pedos or whatever. Yeah, what did yeah, you he say about Gary Kasparov? As well, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's like, like you said to Gary told- Kasparov, "What have you done?" Yeah. And <laughs> this guy's like risked his life speaking out as a high-profile no. you know, critic of Putin's like tr- true bravery. Oh, Elon. Yeah. Elon, Elon. Oh, Elon, yeah. That's, that's <laughs> one, uh, one last bit of company news this week. I don't know if you guys had tracked it much. Was it Tomos? Did you guys, have you guys yeah. tracked it that much? Oh, no. It's just like coincidentally we had an article ready to rock on it and then the, and then the news came out that they put restating their revenue downwards. Yeah. So they basically, they had been accused before by an employee of revenue stuffing, right? So basically reporting at the end of a period, so the end of the financial year, kind of bringing forward revenue and reporting it in the current financial year. And then the auditor, they had to put an announcement, Deloitte saying, basically, we've um, determined that you need to move $8.7 million of your revenue from 2022 to 2023. It seems pretty bad. That's just like, it's just so, that company is just, oh, it couldn't have had more red flags along the way. Yeah, we've covered that before, I guess. But um, yeah, it seems pretty uh, pretty shocking. It's down, I think, 90% from its high in September last year. So yeah, it's pretty wild, pretty wild ride. But, uh, I've got a meeting lined up with the with the man- uh, CEO next week or the week after. Oh, maybe. wow. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> interesting. Am I allowed to ask questions? They'll be like, oh, why did I come on Straw Man? Get me out of here. <laughs> well, they were, they were scheduled to be last week and they pulled at the last minute. It was like, interesting. And then, uh, so yeah. <laughs> So next Wednesday, we'll get to get to ask some questions. It'll be an interesting meeting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we'll have to have a follow-up after that. Sounds good. Good luck turning around that ship. Maybe that's we'll uh, – should we wrap it there, gents? Do you have anything else you want to chat about? No, that's, that's it. That's been a yeah. lot. Thanks for Yeah, we covered a lot of ground. No, good stuff. Good chat. If anyone has any feedback, um, can drop us a line at babygiantspod on Twitter or hit us up on Gmail, babygiantspodcast at gmail.com. Uh, until next time, thanks very much for listening. Thanks, guys.